Human children are born naked and nameless like the animals. They become humanized only through rearing, the work not of nature but of acts of speech and symbolic deed, including praise and blame, reward and punishment, custom, habituation, and education. They become humanized in the first instance, at the hands of parents. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 257. What's your shame? I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. When I was studying in yeshiva as a young man, there was a legendary story that was later largely confirmed in an article in Tablet magazine that we have sent to you today. The story described a man by the name of Michael Berkowitz, an American who moved to Israel and who with his wife raised a large family. Along with the Hebrew names bestowed upon his children, Berkowitz chose English names that were unusual. Thus, one son named Kalman Berkowitz was also accorded the appellation Charles Danger Berkowitz, so that he could say, Danger is my middle name. Yehuda Berkowitz was also given the name Just, J-U-S-T, so that when asked his name, he could say, Just Berkowitz. The article by Michael Orbach tells us, quote, The first four names were Berkowitz's own inventions, while the fifth was part of a contest. Name that Berkowitz, he ran among English speakers in Yeshivat Haratzion, where he was studying at the time. He initially wanted to do without an English first name for the couple's fifth child, envisioning the following scenario at airport customs. What's your name? Berkowitz. Your full name? Berkowitz. Just Berkowitz? No, that's my brother. End quote. The amusing article captures an aspect of the parent-child relationship, which is naming. Examined in an article in First Things Magazine by Leon and Amy Cass, titled, What's Your Name? There they reflect as follows. Quote, the first gift of parents to a child after the gift of life itself is its name. Like the given life it names, the given name is a gift for a lifetime, indeed for more than a lifetime. When we are gone, our name carved in stone and the memories it evokes will be, for nearly all of us, all that remains. Here is a gift that is not only permanent but possibly life-shaping. Here is a gift that cannot be refused. Here is a gift that cannot easily be put aside. Here is a gift that must be worn, and that straightaway not only marks but constitutes one's identity. End quote. As it happens, naming is central to the story in Ruth, especially when we meet a man with an exceedingly odd name, a name that is essentially the Bible's way of avoiding telling us his name, a story that thereby tells us what names are all about. As we've discussed, the society in the age of the book of Ruth had a practice known as Geulah, redemption, which seems to be some sort of extension of leveret marriage. Boaz is a kinsman of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband, and therefore Boaz, in theory, could be asked to marry Naomi to perpetuate their family. But Naomi knows that it is only through Ruth that the family can continue, and that Boaz, though older, should marry Ruth. Under Naomi's guidance, Ruth goes to see Boaz in the middle of the night and asks him to marry her. Boaz answers with grace. Though Ruth is penniless and a foreigner, he clearly admires her virtue and her loyalty to her mother-in-law and he therefore delivers a response in a way that expresses gratitude to her. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast shown more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young man, whether poor or rich. But then Boaz tells Ruth that while he would feel privileged to marry her, he must await the refusal of another man, one who is more closely related to the deceased Elimelech. He says, And now, my daughter, fear not, I will do to thee all that thou requirest, for all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman, howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I. 
Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not perform the part of a kinsman to thee, then I will perform the part of a kinsman to thee, as the Lord liveth. Boaz then, the next morning, seeks out the closer kinsman, and gives this kinsman the chance to marry Ruth. But what is the name of this man? We are told. And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spoke came by, unto whom he said, Hey, Plony Almoni, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here, and they sat down. Plony Almoni is the name given here for this man, which of course is not his name. It is a way of saying John Doe or so-and-so. Plony Almoni does not wish to marry Ruth, for the reason, it seems, of Ruth's Moabite origins. Thus we meet a man, a relation of Naomi's late husband, who is supposed to marry Ruth, perpetuate the family, and perpetuate the memory of those who have passed, and who refuses, not seeing Ruth's greatness, as Boaz did. The Bible, in calling him Plony Almoni, erases his name, or does not inform us of it. It seems to go out of its way to deny us his name. And the reason for this can be deciphered based on what happens next. The marriage to Ruth, Boaz explains to all those assembled, is a way of perpetuating the name of the deceased relatives. In Hebrew, the shame of Elimelech, Machlon, and Chilion. And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day, that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Machlon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Machlon, have I taken to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. The family of Plony Almoni and of Boaz needs someone to perpetuate the family and therefore the name of the deceased, of Elimelech, Machlon, and Chilion. This highlights one of the central themes of the Book of Ruth, which is the balance between individual identity and that derived from connection to family, continuity, and community. And we can understand, therefore, how the concept of names embodies this very tension. Leon and Amy Cass, in their article about names, describe naming as the ultimate example of how parents make choices for the child, how a child encounters the name as a choice made for him by preceding generations. As they note, the seriousness of the act of naming can be seen in the Jewish rituals where it is performed. For a boy, the name is bestowed as part and parcel of the circumcision. The newborn girl is named in public at the synagogue as the father stands before the Torah. This means, as they note, that the act of naming is a form of sanctification, of linking child to parents, and also to faith and community. This is why parents take the responsibility of naming very seriously, or perhaps most do. The Cassis amusingly describe a Jewish family from Shaker Heights, who some decades ago decided to name their child Lancelot, and, when they would call him to the house, would endow the appellation with a Yiddish diminutive, so that their voice would sound through the neighborhood, Lancelotkala! But in general, parents sense the importance of their choice, and often in naming after someone from the family or history in the past seek to impress a sense of legacy and continuity upon the child. Leon and Amy Cass put it this way, quote, The identity given by means of the given name de facto recognizes and celebrates the uniqueness of the life its bearer will live. Naming a child thus anticipates exactly the central difficulty of child-rearing altogether how to communicate unconditional love for the child just as he now is, at the same time as one is doing all in one's power to encourage and to help him to become better, which is to say, more lovable. A name, likable here and now, but also bearing hope and promise, fits the good enough but potentially much better kind of being that is the human child, indeed, is the human being throughout life. 
Defining the child now but also for later, the given but independent name also looks forward to the time when, thanks to good rearing, he will be able to write his own named account in the book of life. In all these ways, the naming of a child is in fact an emblem of the entire parent relation, in both its human generality and its radical particularity. Human children are born naked and nameless like the animals. They become humanized only through rearing, the work not of nature but of acts of speech and symbolic deed, including praise and blame, reward and punishment, custom, habituation, and education. They become humanized in the first instance, at the hands of parents, who among other duties try steadily to teach children how to call all things by their proper names and to show them how to acquire a good name for themselves. End quote. Thus, the paradox of a name is that while it seems to mark us as an individual, the gift of a name almost always comes from the past, from our parents, from those before, and thereby reminds us that we are part of a larger whole. And the plot of Ruth and the way in which it's told can now be better understood. The point of this passage is that if Ploni Elmoni does not act on behalf of the family to perpetuate the name of a family member, then he, for this text, is ultimately denied his name, because the name itself embodies a link to others formation of bonds that connect one to past and posterity. We need not organize our society exactly like the Bethlehem of Ruth's day in order to understand from this book that we are also called to ponder our obligations as part of a family, community, and people to others. It is therefore poignant and powerful, as I wrote in Mosaic, that Leon Cass, following the passing of Amy Cass, studied the book of Ruth together with his granddaughter and wrote a book with his granddaughter Hannah about it, as Leon Cass wrote, quote, Reading Ruth with Hannah, begun in grief, was from the start a life-affirming weaving together of the personal and the intellectual, of the philosophical and the familial. In the company of fresh eyes and an eager heart, a lost insight of Amy's was recovered, revivified and perpetuated into the next generation. The self-conscious experience of reading with my granddaughter, this magnificent story of intergenerational continuity and remembrance of the dead, and the subsequent experiences of recording, reconsidering, and rewriting our interpretive commentary have confirmed for me the redemptive powers of faithful devotion, new birth, and cultural transmission. In keeping with the spirit and teaching of the book, my loss of Amy has been partly redeemed also by Hannah's Ruth-like and Amy-like chesed, her gracious kindness and loving devotion, which she has steadily showered on me and on Amy's memory. I am overwhelmed with gratitude for these blessings." Here, a grandfather and granddaughter make their way through the book of Ruth, and in so doing, they remember Amy Cass, their wife and grandmother. They rediscover her own insights into the biblical book, and they bind themselves to each other and link past and future. In studying the book of Ruth, they are in a certain sense bidding farewell to one they have lost, but in studying the book, they thereby find her again, to bind ourselves to those that we love, and thereby to express who we truly are. This, in the end, what the book of Ruth is all about. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.